say the road to hell is paved with good intentions, but what if those intentions were more sinister from the beginning? I'm Nikki B, resident pop culture expert, here with utopian history expert Danny McCarthy. We're going to take a deeper look at the sci-fi movies that we love and see if maybe what we always thought were warnings were really blueprints. Join us as we pull at the crimson threads in our beloved cinema. Welcome to The Road to Hell. All right, we're back, baby. This is the Road to Hell Film Reviews podcast coming at you after a somewhat long hiatus. Although I guess we just put out <laughs> an episode that we had in the can for a little while, but... Technically, the hiatus has already ended for them now. It hasn't ended for us yet. It's ending right now as we speak. So it's good to be back. I'm glad that we got another episode out, the branded episode out, before the year ended. So anyway, I assume this will be out in 2023 sometime. So happy New Year to everybody. And uh, today, we're going to talk about a movie that came out in 1995, starring Keanu and Dolph Lundgren, called Johnny Mnemonic. So this was a Nikki pick. Uh, I had never seen or heard of this movie, but I, I gotta say, I really enjoyed it. So wh- why is it that you wanted to watch this? <laughs> I mean, if nothing else, it's super fun. And it's fun, even though it wasn't supposed to be fun, like it's fun despite itself. Um, it's got some great, like great, as a musician myself, I was tickled pink by some of the musicians that are in the movie. I'm not sure if you actually even recognized any of them. <laughs> I recognized Ice T. Okay. And, and that doctor is Henry Rollins. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, so there were some fun things in there, but it, it covers so much. This is a movie based on a short story by William Gibson, which we've talked about, I think in previous episodes. He's, he was a big guy in the 80s, probably maybe early, late 70s, writing about the cyberpunk kind of world. And, you know, wow, this is a, as cyberpunk a movie as I think we ever really got. But the problem is it's a cyberpunk movie that came out contemporarily with movies like Hackers. And so we kind of already moved on past this vision of what the world was going to be like. Uh, this movie... If, if you didn't notice, it takes place in 2021, mm-hmm. which is, you know, <laughs> very entertaining. But, you know, that's it's why I chose the movie. Um, it gets into a lot of different ideas, like, like what technology means to a society, really starts diving into the transhumanist stuff, which I know you've spent more time dealing with the transhumanist stuff than I have. But uh, I thought it'd be a really good one to kind of get into some of the broad topics that we have to cover. Sure. Well, I'll start by saying before we even get into the more conceptual stuff that this is just such a 90s movie and I love that. Like uh, down to the color schemes and the cinematography, it's just such a I get a 90s movie. You could tell almost that it was made by Gen X for Gen X, you know. I've I kind of noticed recently that if you look at futuristic types of of dystopias or whatever, uh, oftentimes you can almost see a generational imprint. So like previous generations, when they would make movies like way back, way back in the old days, like in the 50s or whatever, with some exceptions like Omega Man, that wasn't in the 50s, but whatever. Some exceptions, oftentimes the future would be portrayed as like 
happy and utopian and uplifting. And that kind of reflects what the generation in midlife at that point maybe expected. You know, so you see things like Star Trek, right, where the future is bold and glorious and technologically savvy. Everyone's out there doing what they're doing. We've, we've progressed noticeably. But as we move into the later 20th century and we see these futuristic movies, the future is always incredibly bleak. Like, sure, technology has advanced, but these movies are almost always set in like slums and ghettos and you just see corporations and government are purely corrupt. Everything sucks. There's this over-the-top kind of like punk nightclub scene in pretty much every dystopian movie mm-hmm. from like the 80s and 90s. You know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. this movie in its imagery is kind of, it's not really unique. I, I still, it's like a uniquely Gen X 80s, 90s thing that this movie does. And I just, I can't get enough of it. I love it. I love everyone in the nightclub is just wearing a ridiculous amount of makeup and the entertainment is just wild. Everybody's corrupt. They're Almost are no good guys, you know. It, it's well, your your protagonist is clearly not a good guy. No, he's an antihero. Like you get to the end, like, at the end of the movie, and he's sitting there crying. I want room service. <laughs> I want my ten thousand dollar a night prostitute. Like yes, exactly. He doesn't want to be a hero. He wants to be spoiled. Like he wants room service. He wants to have his clothes laundered professionally and stuff. Well, he fought hard and he lived the life he needed to to make sure that he could get what he wanted. Mm-hmm. And yeah. life was not allowing that to happen. Exactly. He's the kind of gritty anti-hero again that rose to popularity in, I would say, the the 80s and 90s and has continued to be the sort of stock hero uh, in Hollywood today where it, it's just a, a gruff dude who's out for himself. You know, he's got his own mission and his own motives. He's not concerned with the greater good. He's just doing his thing. And then, hesitatingly, he winds up having to take on some larger, greater project. God, dude, you're, you're just saying this, and I'm thinking back, and I was like, I, I completely understand why millennials are the way millennials are. It's It's this character. It's this idea that our parents and our grandparents' generation screwed up the world and, you know, it's up to us, not that we want to do it, but because we're forced to do it, having to fix all their problems. Yeah, it's like a reluctant hero kind of thing. Yeah, I think that's, as I look out, like the other people in my generation, that that feels so honest to me. Like everyone is, God, I don't want this to be my problem, but it's my problem. And I guess I have to be the hero to take it on. Yeah, this is like <laughs> the very beginning. And so in the movie, while we're on the subject of this kind of generational thing, in the movie... Again, it takes place in 2021, and there's one scene where it actually shows the main character, played by Keanu Reeves, birthday. And it's like August something, 1994. So he's like a year younger than I am in real life right now. So in the movie, that makes him, what, 26? He was born in 94? Mm -hmm. Sounds about right. Yeah, so he's a millennial. Like the character is actually a millennial who's pretty much my age right now. And I just kind of thought that was interesting and going off of what you said about why millennials are the way they are. Like, he's a guy who finds himself in a world ruined by the older generation. And to just kind of insert one plot point that'll make this conversation more relevant, the big thing going on is there's this disease. It's called nerve attenuation syndrome or something like that, NAS. Mm -hmm. And basically people just get the shakes and seize up and In the mainstream, nobody really knows what causes it or there's some bullshit explanation. But uh, 
the disease is actually caused by technological society. Like the fact that there are computers and everything all around all the time, people are just fried with data overload. And so they get this, their, their nervous, nervous system breaks down. But it turns out that this big pharmaceutical corporation actually has a cure and they are not interested at all in letting the cure go public because there's money in treating the disease. So that just to say that the establishment, the status quo in this fictional world <laughs> is entirely corrupt, like mm -hmm. to the point where the pharmaceutical companies are explicitly hiring Yakuza, Japanese mafia organizations to actually do their dirty work for them. It's not even a secret because yeah. society is just so broken down. It's, it's the dystopian picture of the future that you saw in a movie 10 years earlier, five years earlier, in like Back to the Future Part 2. You know, it's the same like Donald Trump biff future, you know, like it could yeah. it could almost be the same universe. But anyway, no, no. Um, one of the things I think is so nerve attenuation syndrome, as they call it in here, is what they want to blame it on is they want to blame it on all the, the modifications, like the people that go and get the enhancements. But what it really is, is it's not it, it, it's wider than that. It is the technology constantly surrounding people that really causes it. You know, not this thing that they can try and scapegoat for it. Right. And so but what by enhancements, what you mean are we living in they're living in a future where transhumanism is completely accepted reality and people voluntarily go and get technological implants put into their body for all sorts of different functions, I guess. Mm -hmm. And uh, so so that's what you mean. There. Yeah. Well, and it's fun because. In taking this context for the time it came out, like your bodyguard character is a woman mm -hmm. who has a, uh, I think is Molly Millions is her name in the book or the short story, which I like <laughs> way better than in this. Right. She's just called Jane, I think, in the movie. Yeah. And, uh, you know, the idea being that you know, she's trying to become a bodyguard. like, in, And ultimately for Ralphie, the, the bad guy that gets, you know, our Keanu into this and the whole, you know, thing. He's, he's the, he's the guy that's screwing Keanu over throughout the whole movie. Yeah. He's like the first low tier bad guy. Like he's the, the stooge bad guy that gets Keanu into the ultimate trouble of the movie. Yeah. Basically. What's real fun to say, you see those two twins or the two bodyguards that Ralphie has. Mm -hmm. So in the short story, like first off, they're described as being two meters high. It's a pretty tall person. If I remember correctly. Right. Two meters. Yeah, I think that'd be pretty big. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and they're described as being once lovers and now so indiscernible from each other due to the modifications that they might as well be the same creature. Whoa. <laughs> it's like they they did kind of make one a man, one a woman and do like this kind of play on them trying. But in the book, they're actually described as being modified to the point where despite one being black and one being white, you can't really tell the difference. Right. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. That definitely didn't come across in the movie, but that, yeah. So what you're dealing with there is just the idea that biological humanity is something that is completely plastic at this point in this reality, you can effectively alter your entire being via technology and then sell whatever enhancements you've given yourself that becomes sort of like a, a trade almost that you can use to to sell your services to other people. So there's a whole new market. I'm completely okay with this for the record. Like I am all about mutant league football becoming real. Like I do not care about 
uh, athletes that take, uh, you know, juice. Mm-hmm. And the minute they can like start putting like springs and shit in their hands and make them super strong and be able to jump 20 feet in the air, please, if you're willing to do that, go right ahead. I will watch that sport because that's your personal choice to do that kind of shit. And it's only going to make the entertainment value better for everybody else. Yeah. <laughs> but um, when we're talking about the whole transhumanist thing, you, you, there's a, the low techs, which are run by Ice T, <laughs> which I always love saying Ice T <laughs> in this movie. Then <laughs> he makes a comment about the Dolph Lundgren character. Right. Which is not actually in the short story at all. That character does not exist. It's added to the movie specifically because movies want people to do certain things. But Whoa. Well, it's a great character. It's a great character. It is It is a great character. And and what is the li- the line that Ace T has in there? It's like, there's not an original bone in that guy's body. Right. Because he, he's kind of created this transhumanist cult that he leads where his God is technology. Or what does he say? He's like, yeah, that guy's got technology and God all ass backwards. Right. <laughs> but he does play the role of this kind of like monk or pastor who walks around in robes with a shepherd's staff like muttering about Jesus and stuff, but then he's the most brutal assassin, you know, like this guy, he's the classic bad guy who will torture, you know, he, he meets up with somebody, wants information, so he's going to torture them, but he doesn't do the thing where he like holds the knife against their throat and is like, I'm really going to cut you unless you tell me. He just straight up stabs the dude in the hand or cuts his fingers off, you know, he, he, there's no hesitation, he's absolutely brutal, and all the while he's talking about Jesus, it's great. This character was not in the original story, but there was actually a monologue that he had in the movie that was taken out because it would be so offensive to Christians. Ooh. Now, I want you to think back on some of the shit he did in this in this movie. He actually did you did you pay attention to what he did to Henry Rollins? Well, yeah, he crucified him. Exactly. And I'm like, so he said <laughs> something that's more offensive than that. Jesus, do you know what it is? Have you been able to find it? No, I I I, I it's one of those things now that I know it exists, I have to find it and find what I can yeah. about it. Wow. I'd love to hear that because, first of all, I, I think you already mentioned it, but for the listening audience, this character is played by Dolph Lundgren. So, and he, he's like, he's a more talkative version. Uh, well, it's not the same character, but he's he's kind of got the same menacing quality that Dolph Lundgren has in Rocky Four. You know, like he's not quite totally human. You know what I mean? Well, so Dolph Lundgren, for those of the show who aren't familiar with Dolph Lundgren, and I'm not sure if Danny <laughs> knows this, he actually, I believe, is a... A nuclear physicist, I think. Yeah, yeah. He's like a super qualified scientist, yeah. And happens to be a very physically imposing person. Like, when you think of the the Russian monster man coming to kill you. Like, like <laughs> if he wasn't so old now, he is the guy that you would have had play Colossus in the X-Men. Yeah, yeah. Like, that's just... what. In fact, he may have been the inspiration for Colossus, depending on when that character <laughs> happened, as far as I know. That could be. Yeah, I mean, this is Drago, man. He's this, like, the robotic, scary, jacked, foreign dude. Yeah. You know? And in this movie, he's kind of this... He's not as robotic as he is as Drago, which is kind of ironic because this character is actually... Robotic. Part robot. But it's the same thing where, like in the Rocky movie, he's on steroids and he's almost unnatural. He's supernatural. And then he's the same kind of bad guy in this, which just adds to... The horror, I guess, of his presence, right? Because he doesn't have the same kind of scruples that even a shitty human being would. You know what I mean? Like like I said, his version of torture isn't like, I'll threaten you with violence unless you talk. 
his version of torture is I'll just start cutting shit off of you and then hopefully you'll talk before I kill you. He's crazy. <clears throat> well, is he crazy or is he a stand-in for the idea of what humanity is and how a person loses their humanity? The idea being he's so much more robot than he is human that he doesn't he no longer has any humanity. Yeah. Now he he plays at it. Now is that a statement on AI and how close AI can ever get to real humanity? Because he's not the only character that represents moving past humanity. There is a character that actually is referred to as a ghost in the machine. Yes. Who is a, has Swiss citizenship, and she was a one-time director for the Pharmacom, which is the big you know pharmaceutical company in this. And she is kind of reaching out through the internet to try and help as much as she can, but she's a computer program now. Computer program that has citizenship. <laughs> she's the other side of the coin to Dolph Lundgren, in a way. Yeah, like he's still kind of human, but completely inhuman. She no longer has any humanity, but is the one pushing humanity. Yeah, she's got a conscience, right? There, there is something else I want to say about the Dolph Lundgren character, but maybe I'll, I'll save that uh, maybe towards the end. But before we move any further in, like I think we've set kind of the groundwork and the setting of this movie up pretty well. So I think we should probably mention the fact that the whole point of what's the, the adventure in the movie is the fact that Keanu's character, Johnny, is what's called a mnemonic. And it's basically somebody who gets a, a computer put into their head, and then you can plug data into that computer and upload it into the person's brain. So they become like couriers. So rather than like mailing USB ports or floppy disks in the mail to convey information, powerful organizations or underground organizations, whatever, will hire a courier upload data directly into their head and then this courier will travel in disguise or covertly or whatever to the destination never knowing what's in their head because it's encoded and then delivers the information it's removed from their head and there you go so they're a courier and so that's his job he is uploaded with a huge amount of data well, from this kind well go ahead go ahead this is probably one of the best parts of the movie, and it's only uh -huh. funny because the way history works out. So he has he has the ability to hold was it sixty gigs of eighty, 80 gigs of 80. data in his head, but he can double it to one hundred and sixty. But right. they give him three hundred and twenty gigs of data, which is just which is considered to be this absolute massive amount of data. Now, mind you, yeah, I have terabyte drives that like are. The size of my thumbnail. <laughs> Different right, than my phone <laughs> now. So it's it's probably one of the most unintentionally funny things is the idea that 360 gigabytes is super massive. Oh, it's unconceivable. Like and also I, I love the idea that his his hard drive in his head has only so much data, but they've they've got this like analog version of technology, I guess, where you know if you overload the drive. It's not like it says, sorry, there's not enough room on the drive. He's like able to just squeeze the data real tight. So it's like it damages the system, but you could still put like, what is yeah. what is this? This is not I can't stick a one gigabyte flash drive into my computer and put two gigs worth of shit on it and just like hope it holds and try really there. Right. Oh, it's going to blow any second. <laughs> it's so funny. Yeah. It's such a, a wacky premise, but I love it. Yeah. I love it so much. Well, once again, it's part of, you know, the, the actual writing came out in the 80s. This comes mm -hmm. out in the 90s. And they're trying to deal with, you know, 
I guess the reality of where things were maybe at the time. I don't know. It's hard to it's hard to forecast ahead and predict entirely new technologies. It's a lot easier to just ma- imagine current technology better. Mm-hmm. So like in one scene in the movie, Ice T, he's like jacking into the television, the the satellite. So he's cutting into people's TV feed. And at one point he this is twenty twenty one. Get your VCRs about to broadcast ready. Some, get your VCRs ready. Exactly. Or like the technology they use to upload the stuff into Johnny's head. It's all like CD-ROM based. Like they're, they're using it's discs. actually mini discs, but um, no, all right. um, <laughs> now just to be clear, Danny's a bit younger than me. So I've yeah. actually had musical devices, like old era music devices, but music devices that I've used that actually did store their data on cassettes and not audio data, wow. their actual programming data would read off of a cassette through a like a headphone port. Really? That's wild. So it's it, we're not that far removed from this stuff as you want to think. Yeah. That's just I, I just love it. So it's that. funny as you it's think that fun. VCR thing is like it's it's I mean back in 96 we were we were still using put it this way I had a TV VCR combo when I went to college that I bought new. Sure. Oh yeah, I mean we had in my I still have I have literally have a VCR right here. <laughs> We had uh, tapes, and that's what we were using well into the two mm. thousands. But uh, oh, it, no, it's it just changed. funny to project ahead to like twenty twenty one. It changed real <laughs> fast after that. But yeah, but yeah. So it, 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 there's definitely like interesting stuff in that matter. Yeah, but that's you know I don't like I don't want to harp too much on the like oh what predictions did they get wrong because that's no fun. I just I wanted to point that stuff out there. But Johnny has been uploaded with this data this huge 320 gigabytes worth of data. He doesn't know what it is, but this group of Yakuza who are working for Pharmacom, the big company, they bust in, they kill the guys that are uploading the data to him. He manages to escape, but loses the code to decipher what's in his head. And so the adventure of the movie, at least the first, like the beginning in the middle of the movie, become about him trying to find somebody who can get this data out of his head. Because like we said, it's too much. So it's going to like blow. It's going to like melt his head if he doesn't get it out. So they don't lose the data. Ultimately, what you have in that room is, and he even notices like he shows up and like, you guys aren't my usual clientele. Mm-hmm. And what yeah. it turns out is that these people in this room are the R&D department for Pharmacom. And they right. have, no, 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 mind you, it said at some point that this, the, uh, the, the syndrome affects something like 50% of the population in this world. And yeah, it's bad. So there, these, these people are, have a world where they, 50% of the people are affected by this. This company has the cure for it. Uh, is this a stand-in for the cure for cancer? I don't know. <laughs> but it's affected, affecting this people. And they, the company decides that treatment is more cost-effective for them or makes them more money than the cure ever would. And so they're just going to sit on the cure. These scientists don't want that to happen, so they try and break it out. In a normal case of things, the courier would be downloaded the data, and then they encrypt in the three images, and those three images, they fax separately to the other end. And in this movie, the other end is Dr. Alcum. And so the code, the code is like, that's the mnemonic device. That's the, the pun, I guess, if you want to call it a pun. That's the joke of the title. Like, the these three random images will associate to and then jog the memory of the implanted memory and then bring that forward. That way the data can be released. So, and I'm assuming part of the reason that this is the way it is, 
in the actual short story, this is one of the big differences. The courier, from what I, I think, what I felt like happened in the short stories, because at one point they connect him up to a cassette player, and the courier actually delivers the data auditorily. Oh, wow. That's a huge difference. Like, you're putting a computer program in their head, and then, like, they shut out when this happens. Like, they're, like they don't know what's going on with themselves. But, like, they, you actually record via cassette the information. Now, I could have mm-hmm. been incorrect about that. It could just be they're jacked in recording it that way. But it sure felt like, you know, it was actually auditorily, because they make it, they talk about him singing when he's doing this. Also, the idea of, like, mnemonic. When you're you're talking, would make that make even more sense to me, right? So wow, okay, that's very interesting. In the movie, it's more visually centered and like multimedia almost. Like the files in his head are when they're brought out, they're like video files and documents and stuff like mm. that. Well, and and I think a lot of that is in the movie. They're '90s movies had a tendency to be really excited about special effects, and so yeah. sometimes movies were just decided that they were going to be. A, Special effects reels for different effects companies. Yeah, they wanted to put on a show, and I don't think I could handle Keanu singing. Not yet. Well, I, I think that the, the reason it's singing is not that he actually sang, but I think it's the idea of like him actually delivering this through his mouth was what they were mm-hmm. trying to get across. So, Well, like I said, I, I loved the CGI cyber scenes. That was like my favorite part of the movie. Because when, when they go online in this movie, when someone goes on the internet, they go in the internet. Like there's a little dude. And he runs around in the internet. Well, did you ever watch Reboot, the cartoon, back in the day? Nope. So Reboot is an entire TV show kind of centered around that. Like that idea uh, that inside your computer is that world. I love I love the trope of like cyberspace is an actual space and like you can go into it. There were episodes of cartoons I watched when I was a kid where they would do that kind of stuff. And so like the vi- if you have a computer virus, it's actually like a thing attacking you that hurts. and All of that stuff is in this movie and I just... I, I can't get enough of it. Well, and William Gibson is where much of that stuff all comes from. The whole idea of cyberspace is William Gibson. Mm. So, okay. you know, all those tropes are tropes because he's the guy that originated them back in the 80s. Nice, nice. But the vision of the internet, what's funny to me is so we were, I was sitting here with my wife watching it this morning and she just starts laughing all of a sudden when like we're in the internet. I'm like, what do you, what do you find so funny? And she's like, like the internet that they envision is exactly what meta looks like right now and what they're trying to promote. And I'm like, and and it's no wonder to people like me, well, that's why meta is having such a difficult time getting people to buy in because that internet, like we're way past that internet. Like that internet's not, that doesn't make sense. Like what we found, what was useful about the internet and it wasn't that. Yeah. Meta is grasping at nineties sci-fi internet. (laughs) Well, it's, it's grasping at 80s sci-fi internet. Yeah. As visual as visualized through the 90s. Right. It's pretty embarrassing. It's that that kind of adds a whole nother layer to these cyber scenes, I guess. And maybe in a strange way, that's kind of a vindication for these scenes. Like they were saying this is what would be happening around now. And sure enough, <laughs> you know, this is actually kind of what it does look like, at least for the meta users. There is something that's different. And perhaps this is on the cusp of where they want to push things is that if you look at the world outside there, you're not going to leave your house probably very much. Right. Because it's too dangerous a world to go outside in, which is a trope you find in a lot of these worlds. People don't leave, but you don't want to leave because you don't want to go out and deal with what you're going to have to deal with out there. So you're stuck at home, you're stuck on the computer, and they're creating the world to mimic the outside world within 
that world. And that's what makes the real estate in that world so much more important now. Yeah. When they say you, ever, you live in the pod, you're going to own nothing and be happy. It, that's, that The idea of that world starts making this world maybe look a, a little bit more exciting. You know, is that crappy 90s online internet, uh, you know, <laughs> cyberspace a better place than we're, we're headed is, you know, you watch mining get tired around the country and riots, you know, erupting when things get hard in places like Buffalo. We had this weekend, you know, I, I don't know if that's, you know, we're just not to that part in the story yet. Right. That's, but that's more your expertise there, Danny. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, dystopias are dystopian and uh, they oftentimes, I think, need to have some kind of almost relaxation valve for people. People need a place to feel comfortable. If people just have one place where they can feel even slightly comfortable, I think they'll be willing to let a lot of the externalities just go. You know, so if you can, if you've got Netflix or whatever, I think people are a lot more likely just on the basis of having some one comfort thing to accept a whole lot of bullshit. Now, that's not to say people are entirely passive. Like if food prices go nuts, I think people will also go nuts, regardless of whether or not they have Netflix. But just take the jab and they promise we can get things back to normal. So you're willing to give up all bodily autonomy at the idea of things being normal, quote unquote. Right. So there, exa exactly right. So there's one comfort, quote unquote, for the problem. And people will just flock right to it to the point where they won't even consider possible side effects or, or anything like that. Uh, I think that that is a huge part of these dystopian systems, especially, you know, when we watch these movies that talk about technology again in this kind of Gen X view of the future. The future sucks. Like it's it's not great. They they have a very negative and bleak outlook for where society's going, and all of that is in spite of, or perhaps maybe due to, the fact that technology develops unabated. Once again, back in like the '60s, the the fiction, like the the quintessential fiction of that time, was Star Trek, and it was a future in which technology had expanded and expanded and grown and grown, and that made everything better. But in these movies that came 20, 30 years later, the, uh, uh, the next generation is envisioning a future that is way, way worse because of technology. And I think that part of that has to do with the recognition of maybe the problem we're talking about, where when people are kind of bought off with technology and toys and stuff, they'll be willing to let their the real world go to shit. It's uh, Huxley in uh, 1962. Are you familiar with the Berkeley speech that he gave? Um, not entirely. I, 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 it rings a bell, but I couldn't tell you what it was offhand. Well, the, the, the major part of it, Aldous Huxley, the, the author of Brave New World, gave a speech at Berkeley in 1962. And basically, he said the lesson that should be learned from studying the history of like totalitarianism and authoritarianism is that you can do everything with bayonets except sit on them. That is to say that just using like blunt force government is very effective at conquering people, but it's not very effective at keeping people conquered. So instead, he says that we need to focus. Well, he says that the totalitarian of the future will focus on getting people to love their servitude. And this is actually the speech where that quote comes from. Get people to love their servitude. And I think that even though these movies are portraying a really bad future, I have a sneaking suspicion that if we were able to go in universe and like peek into the life of somebody, there would be some kind of technological appeasement mechanism 
that would keep them happy or at least content, right? So the world sucks, but they're, they've got their toys that they can... We've, all, we've already touched on it. Mm-hmm. Keanu Reeves says he's having his meltdown at the end of the movie, and he's screaming, I want room service. I want my infinite thread count sheets. I want my $10,000 a night prostitute. Yeah, yeah. Like he's setting up that they've, they have the things, if you want to play the ball and play, play good, there's the rewards, you know, stay in line, do your thing. We'll take care of you. Come on, guys. Absolutely. Yeah. So I think that there's perhaps the underlying message. One underlying message of this movie is this kind of appeasement that comes with advancing technology. The technology is being used. But so there's also the double edged sword aspect of technology, because I've been saying how this dystopia comes out of the actual advancement of technology. It wouldn't be possible without this tech. But also in the end, spoiler alert. um, So Johnny gets uploaded with the cure to this disease and, you know, all the shit happens and he's got to figure out he doesn't even know what he's got in his head. But it turns out that it's the cure and it winds up being pulled out of him and broadcast uh, all around the world. So it also winds up being the technology that kind of saves the world, you know? So the disease that he has the cure for is caused literally by the technology that's everywhere. So that in itself is like a pretty heavy handed metaphor for technology being too ubiquitous in this world, right? Mm -hmm. It literally causes your nerve system to break down nervous system, but then it's the technology itself that they're able to use to cure everybody at least ostensibly. Well, and it's, especially when you start talking about things like uh, climate, where people have a lot of feelings and my generation was highly propagandized on to feel certain ways. There's always a concept of, yeah, but technology has pretty much always kind of come out and saved us. Like we're used to technology saving us. So why wouldn't it, why wouldn't it save us this time? Mm-hmm. And that's the idea. Like we don't have to give up technology because, you know, technology's always got a way to come out and kind of heal what it, creates isn't the problem originally yeah and maybe that's like a that's just something that happens you know humans are a cyclical animal i think or history is a cyclical thing i believe and uh well you try to solve problems and technology is fairly good at solving problems and if it creates problems obviously you find ways to solve those new problems well i think it's gonna always be both you know you invent something in order to fix a particular problem but the new thing causes another problem that most people probably couldn't foresee because mm-hmm. why would you be able to? How could you know what the smartphone would lead to? You know, like, I guess some people could probably really think about it, but that's not going to stop the engineer from building it. Mm-hmm. And that's not going to stop the marketers from selling it. And that's not going to stop people from buying it. So by and large, people aren't going to see the problem. And so, you know, you solved one problem, you created another. And so now what? Do we need a new technology to fix the new problem? But then that's going to create another problem. So we're going to have problems. And I think maybe, you know, let's not be utopian in our desires here for like a problemless world. Technology is never going to save us. Technology can save us from specific problems, but it can't save us from all problems because nothing can save us from all problems unless you're like Dolph Lundgren and believe in Jesus. Well, And there is, I think, once again, for the people in the climate thing, there's this natural human desire to want everything to be stable and set. And unfortunately, the nature of reality is that nothing is stable and nothing is set. It's constantly changing. Mm-hmm. And it, it's desire for the world to be this one temperature that we that we, we remember it being from like recent history, even though it's never, ever been that temperature at any other point in history. 
and it doesn't ever stay at any particular temperature for any length of time because the, the world changes. But trying to redirect the entirety of civilization in a way to make stability happen in a place where stability doesn't, it doesn't exist naturally. Well, and technology, I think, is fundamentally a non-stabilizing force. You know, it is dynamic. Well, what what is the word that we use? What is the word that we use anytime there's something new and it changes things? What? Disruptive. There you go. Yeah, exactly. Technology is fundamentally disruptive. It stirs the pot. It shakes things up. It fixes old problems but causes new problems. It is it is the opposite of stable. It's the opposite of static. So to expect something like that, something dynamic, to create a stable society or to rid the world of problems is nuts. That's not to say we shouldn't do it. It's just to like, let's go in knowing that technology is not this magical thing that's going to fix everything. A tool will fix the problem it's intended to fix, but it's not going to fix other problems necessarily. So it's funny that we're talking about this and I'm thinking to myself, you know, we often talk about, you know, technology and you'll have the, we'll talk about like the people behind the curtain pulling the strings and the one thing that's interesting about technology is that as a disruptive force, and I think this is the thing that always kind of gives the the plebs the leg up on anyone else, is that like they have these scenarios in these movies like Johnny Mnemonic where your huge corporations are way ahead of everybody and what they know. But if you know anything about corporations, they're often calcified. They move slowly. There's bureaucracies. Nothing happens. Usually when they do get information, it's because they bought it from some guy who discovered the crap in his garage. Right. Whereas, you know, people are able to handle the disruptions and, you know, utilize them, see things, prepare differently, prepare a million different ways. And so like the idea of completely being boxed in by technology always seems kind of far-fetched because like the larger and more encompassing anything is, the harder it is for it to utilize what it has in the first place. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, something I've talked about quite a bit is, according to cybernetic theory anyway, which, uh, you know, might be a little bit relevant to this conversation. Uh, according to that theory, the larger and more complicated a system is, the more prone it is to entropy. That is to breaking down and not functioning properly. So, yeah, you've got this gigantic corporate structure in this movie. But as you say, like, it's not going to be able to actually act as efficiently as it could. And that's why I think in the end of the movie, what you wind up having happen is this ragtag band of like basically guerrilla warriors and Johnny and, you know, his, his little small group of friends. They're the ones who are able to operate dynamically and to, you know, duck and weave and everything and avoid the corporate system coming to get them and ultimately wind up taking it down. Mm. You know, that's it's it's in the tradition of kind of like Star Wars, frankly. You know, where, you know, it's this small group of ragtag rebels that are able to take down the giant, stagnant, concrete, rectangular empire, you know, because the bigger the thing is, as you said, the slower it will be to move. Even though it's got resources and power and is actually a really threatening force, it can be undermined by people who are able to act more flexibly because their systems are smaller. So since we're talking movies, let me bring this up. We were talking the end of the movie. Uh Uh-huh. There is a 1999 movie, I'm not sure if you've seen it, that I think almost directly ripped off the final scene of this movie. And it was like, I think we can make this scene better, more 
Uh, Are you talking about Fight Club? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I thought of the exact same thing. The movie ends with the farm, the pharmaceutical building on fire. So like people find out, <laughs> and yep. and she's here and he's here and they're watching the moment and the first and like I'm just waiting for for Keanu Reeves to say you met me on a weird day. <laughs> I thought of the exact same thing. I was like, no way, that must be where that comes from, because the people lose their minds after finding out the, what this company did, like immediately. So you just see the giant size skyscraper on fire. They burn it down. Mm-hmm. So there, there goes the empire. You know, it's it's great. It's a you know, it's a pre nine eleven movie that's kind of celebrating terrorism <laughs> in a way. I don't know if it's celebrating terrorism, but it's contextualizing uh, a public response. Well, yeah, but that is insurgency. <laughs> it is. You know, like the the public, the people, and I'm not saying this is a bad thing, or I'm not using this as a criticism, but it's like the people recognize they're being oppressed and do what ought to be done. <laughs> Terrorism is their word. Okay, fair that enough. That word is meant, that because I'm the language guy, I'm the marketing guy, that word is used for very specific things. That's the word used on you and me all the time. Yeah, that's fair. It is it is a word that is put in place to demonize. Insurgency is a good word because insurgency is what it actually is. Okay, let's call it this. Insurgency, asymmetrical, unconventional warfare. Mm-hmm. Irregular warfare. That better, I mean... Well, I mean... It, it could even be it could, like I told Liz. There's so many times she's, she's like, "It's weird that that would happen." Like, why? Imagine like on those TVs, how many people in that company had no idea what that company was doing? Of course, you might be working in that company and find out, "Oh my God, we're a part of this," and start burning your own building down. Of course, yeah. Like, there's so many different ways that that could in fact happen. Um, I I only bring it up to mention that like it's very you like, clearly someone watched this movie. Go, I think I can make that scene even better, and like threw it at the end of Fight Club. <laughs> Which it may also, Fight Club does not end the way the book Fight Club ends. Mm-hmm. It ends very differently, <laughs> as does this book, or just the story from the original. Oh, okay. Um, we haven't mentioned the Navy Dolphin. Right. That is in this movie. Jones. Jones. Well, uh, Jones is funny because Jones, Jones is in the actual story. Huh. Part of the training that they used to create Jones in this original story made him a heroin addict. And so Jones is actually a junkie dolphin. What the hell? And that's how they coerce him into helping them in the short story is by promising him pure. Whoa. <laughs> okay. We got a couple minutes before we're ending here. Uh, the ending is very different because the whole, my head's too full and I need to get this crap out of it doesn't exist in it. it what exists is a bad, like Johnny goes to try and like do a deal and it goes bad. And now he's kind of in a position to just escape and save himself. He escapes by going into low-tech territory. And then him, Millions, the bodyguard, and Jones. Jones is a thing called a squid. They, they utilize this tech squid technology. Now, squid technology, you remember what squids were used for in other movies? Yeah. Well, there's a thing called a squid, which can actually see any information that's ever been in a courier's head. Ooh. And so Jones, being the supreme dolphin hacker, <laughs> and millions and him start utilizing everything, like going through hacking his brain to pull out all the secrets that anyone has ever curried through him to use to extort money out of all these companies. And they become very, very rich. Oh, wow. Wow. That is quite a bit different. Yes. Okay. <laughs> so contextualize all of that in what we got as a movie also. 
<laughs> uh, we've been kind of poking fun at J- Jones in as we're talking here. We haven't mentioned him much, right? But Jones is a Navy Dolphin that was augmented to be a hacker. Yeah, so he just lives in a tank. He's all fitted up with computers and chips and everything. Shit plugged into his head, and and they they did an all right job with Jones as he's kind of mentioned. Like they do mention that he's missing an eye from where it was removed to put in technology into his brain, and you know. But they do leave out him being a heroin addict, which yeah. is hilarious. A, 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 a heroin addict. <laughs> what do you call it? Heroin addict dolphin that used to work for the Navy. Only in the 2020s, man. In the in the story, what's interesting about Jones is Jones can't really communicate well because Jones doesn't he doesn't have a monitor to output in, in the beginning of the story. Okay. And one of the things that they they while they're using all their extortion money that they got from Johnny, they buy a better monitor. So now like they can do cooler stuff with Jones and hack better. And he can communicate better. Like, he, you know, ultimately he had like, I think he has like just a, like a grouping of lights, red, white, and blue lights that he can communicate with. And that's all he has. Right. Okay. And then eventually, you know, they get better monitor technology for it. It was an interesting little thing. It was not a very big short story, which you understand why they added the beef to this. That they did because you couldn't have made a movie that would have kept people's attention out of this, the sparse detail that was in the short story. Mm-hmm. You know, ultimately, what do, what are your thoughts? What do you think are like the the big ideas that this movie touches on and kind of puts out there and seeds into the the public mind? Well, I think that this is a cautionary tale. Fundamentally, I think the tone of it and just the imagery of it is conveying a sense of fear, perhaps, to the audience. Like, beware of the future frankly beware of where this stuff can go like beware of where technology will go but also beware of like corporate power because it is a corporation that is the main bad guy in the movie it's not the government or anything it's it's a company so there's kind of that aspect but of course the cautionary tale about technology but i think maybe the ultimate takeaway and maybe the ultimate lesson of the movie is that the repudiation of transhumanism and over let's over indulgence in technological upgrading so uh, earlier i mentioned that i wanted to say something about the dolph lundgren character uh, and this is actually something that my wife alice noticed when we were watching this at the very end so i want to give credit to alice because this is her point uh, at the very end the dolph lundgren lundgren character gets killed by jones through you know he's able to like beam some super whatever, like a high frequency radio wave or something into the guy. And he, Dolph Lundgren essentially partially melts. So he's just a robotic skeleton lying dead on the floor. But at the very end, you see like his hand moves and then his head starts to like lift up a little bit. And you're like, oh, don't you give me a fucking break. Really? They're about to do a Terminator thing. And then I think Ice-T's character says like, nah, it's just garbage. And then the, the camera zooms out yeah. and you see they've got one of those like metal magnets that they use at impound lots to just they're they're lifting the skeleton he's not resurrected he's just being lifted up and then they chuck him into the water so he's dead and alice was like they fake resurrected they teased a resurrection of this jesus freak this techno jesus uh, and i think that's a really interesting probably on purpose symbol that like here's this character who became technology just like jesus was god who became man 
here's a guy who is a man that became technology. And like Nikki said earlier, the Ice-T character described Dolph Lundgren as having technology and God twisted around, ass backwards. So he's a religious figure who's become technology. And at the very end, you think he's about to resurrect, but they're like, nope, doesn't happen. He's dead. Yeah. And then they throw him in the ocean, just like they supposedly threw bin Laden in the ocean. <laughs> Although that probably is not a, a connection that the movie knew it was going to be making. But the point is that they're saying, like, this is a false god. Mm-hmm. I think the lesson of that scene, that's what makes me think this is ultimately a kind of cautionary, maybe like anti-technology movie, at least to an extent. The the throwing cyber Jesus into the ocean after a fake resurrection is pretty powerful, I think. And is the is the idea to make make the public afraid of pursuing technology for our ends and just trust so that we'll just allow them to their own devices to trust it on you know, their ends. You mean like, well, can you elaborate on that a little bit? Well, the idea, like we were, clearly technology is not bad. They love their technology. Transhumanism is like, it's uh, still a big buzzword. People are still into it. Sure. Especially the people that governments pay. But maybe, maybe we just, maybe the idea is that we as the public and the mainstream, we need to be afraid of it. And just kind of let them do their thing. That's technology is not for us. It's for them. Mm. Okay. I see what you're saying. So like there's a, an anti-transhuman, almost marketing campaign going on to convince, like someone's going to get upgraded. And the the campaign is basically to convince us normal people that like, oh, that's scary. Avoid it. You don't want that kind of shit. I'll never take the brain chip. But meanwhile- Meanwhile, Boston Dynamics is out there gaining ground. Right, right. So somebody's going to take the upgrade and we're just, this campaign is just guaranteeing it's not you and me. Yeah. I mean, that, yeah, I, I, I don't know. It's it, it brings us back to the, the question that we always ask is, is it a warning or is it just kind of showing you what's going to happen and letting you contextualize it? Ugh, I don't I, I never have a good answer to that question. <laughs> I, well, I don't I don't know that there is a good answer. Like, I, th- I mean, is it six of this half dozen or the other? You know, is some of it like depending on who's involved in the project? You know, one guy might have their own way and someone might have another way. Mm-hmm. So. Sure. Right. Yeah. There, it's not like there's just one person involved. I don't know. I don't know. I, I like that point that you just made, though, that, you know, if the transhumanism is coming, then what good does it do us normal and skeptical people to avoid it? Be- knowing that powerful people are probably going to take these so-called upgrades, are we automatically putting ourselves at a disadvantage by refusing to do so? I think that's a good point. But my, you know, pro- provisional counter to that would be, that taking the upgrade also runs the risk of putting yourself in the power of the powerful, you know, because we're talking about systems that are at least potentially hooked into some larger cybernetic internet system, which could mean potentially that they could influence the way you think or influence the way your chips work or whatever in a way they couldn't otherwise. Well, in particular, very, very real world. Who is the guy who writes about transhumanism? Klaus Schwab, the World Economic Forum. Now, who is the guy that on the surface looks like he's fighting tooth and nail against this new world order? Ugh. Elon Musk. Right. But what is Elon Musk's biggest thing he's been, he was working on? It's the brain chip. A brain implant to, to combine humans and computers. Yeah. And I think Elon exists 
to convince the like, you know, right wing populist types of people that, oh, actually the brain chip is cool because Elon's doing it. You know, <laughs> no, it could be that or Elon's always a weird one for me because it's the idea of like, if you were one of us and you managed to find yourself inside the machine, find your position to take it down, would you look any different than anyone else inside the machine? Until the moment that you actually do, until you make your move. Right. Um, it, it's always, there's always the frustration of, you know, is, is it worth keeping hope that maybe somebody could infiltrate, take over and pull the, you know, self-destruct switch for us? Because it seems harder and harder every day if we're going to be able to pull that switch ourselves. Well, you know, of course, that's, I guess that's a possibility. I don't know that it's very likely. In Elon's case, I'd need to see some, some evidence of that, but I don't trust the guy. I don't trust the guy at all. I think he's a complete sham. I think his presence on the scene is uh, basically an op. Look, I trust <laughs> Tolkien. <laughs> I trust G.K. Chesterton. Uh-huh. And I trust, what's his name, from uh, the uh, Space Trilogy. My wife, wife loves so much. Um, C.S. Lewis. <laughs> oh, right, right. Those are the three people I trust in history. Okay, that's a good list. Uh, I accept. But but there's, there's always, is, is there any reason to... Not try and kindle hope, I guess. I, a cautionary hope, I would say. I just, I'm not against hope necessarily. Well, sometimes I am. It depends on the day. Depends how much that whiskey bottle he's drank. <laughs> I just, Elon, based on his where he gets his money and based on his activities with this Neuralink thing, I just can't get can't get behind it. To play it. devil's advocate, it, to to function technologically at the level they are, how works would you get money? You to have the limitless funds that you need to play in that pool, you'd have to have them pay for it. Oh, sure. More importantly, are you and me going to turn down government funds to pay for our, our pet projects that we think could take them down? I would love to have the be able to say we 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 finance their own undoing with themselves. Sure, I I, I understand all that. the The part where I'm skeptical is that like for some reason Elon is one of us. I just I'm not seeing that. I'm seeing him as more of an opportunist who is just kind of buying into the political climate that he can. He's getting a whole bunch of people on board with with him, like on his brand, because he's just playing to their rhetoric. That's what I'm seeing. So this this episode is most likely going to come out at the beginning of February. But for us, we're, we're cresting right into the new year in a couple of days, moving into 2023. And God damn it, like, just let me have a little bit of hope here. Things look right, pretty. Fine. Things look pretty bleak. Okay, <laughs> maybe maybe not maybe not uh, Johnny Mnemonic World bleak, but not too far off. Right. <laughs> so, have you given any thoughts what we're going to be doing next time? <gasps> okay, I want to do RoboCop. That wasn't actually that far down on my list. So yeah, RoboCop is yeah, good. We, that's good. Okay. Which one? Number the first one. Okay. Yeah. If we want to do other ones later on, that's fine. But I definitely want to hit number one. Okay. If you're good with that, I, I think I was thinking about it last night. I haven't seen that movie since I was a kid. And and that's it's the original, right? Because they didn't they make it make a yeah. terrible remake. Oh, oh, yeah. I think you're right. No, absolutely the original for sure. Now, what is it? 1987. It's got one of my favorite favorite actors in it. Uh, uh, who? Robocop. What's his name? Peter something. Peter Weller. Peter Weller. All right. Yeah, I think we should do that. The or Buckaroo Banzai himself. That's that's probably before your era, huh? I have no idea what that is. I'm I'm excited about it. So get a, not terribly off topic. Go, if you you want to prep yourself for the episode, go and listen to the song "Measurement of Decay" by Carried by Six, which is okay. a metal band that I used to be 
a vocalist for. Now, in this particular song, uh, there was no vocals, but I did produce the song all myself. Like did all like did all the mixing and took all the tracks, and I actually used sound. I actually used sound from RoboCop. Like my my favorite, one of my favorite. I think it's RoboCop Two that it's actually in. It's one of the commercials, and it's where he's uh, talking about. Oh, what sort of like, Yeah, I uh, I had to get the account in Detroit by two p.m. and like I, we lost the account. And then like the next thing is it scans over the shows like the silhouette of the guy next to his family picture, and you just see him blow his brains out in silhouette. Jesus, <laughs> we lost the account. And and the whole thing is it's like for a mail company. <laughs> so I'm gonna have plenty to say about the uh, <laughs> the interstitials and you know mail and what do you call it. Uh, Marketing, let's put it that way. <laughs> Great. Yes, I'm looking forward to that one, for sure. I look forward to all these. They're all super fun to me. Yeah, I really enjoyed Johnny Mnemonic. It reminded me a lot of Strange Days, just with the like very quintessential 90s dystopia thing. And I, I love it. I love yeah. it. Any more movies that are kind of in the same vein, I'll, I'll gladly do with these. Plenty <laughs> of them, my friend. Plenty of okay. them. Okay. Good, good, good. The, the part, the problem is, is like as many of them as there are. There's like there's some classics that I want to get to. Also, mm-hmm. I mean, there's there's so many good science fiction movies you could put on this. Like, we would release an episode every week forever and never run out of good content. Right. So it's like, what what do you what do you prioritize? You know. <laughs> yeah, it's hard. Well, yeah, let's let's do RoboCop. I haven't seen that since I was like I don't know nine, maybe. I have no idea how old I was when I really. Saw you, you, yes, you don't watch a lot of movies. I say, I'm pretty sure I watched RoboCop like weeks ago. <laughs> <laughs> but I like movies, so yeah, I, I watch when I can. But I don't know. Uh, you're you're rekindling, or I guess I should say, just kindling a new newly found love for this sci-fi stuff. I never really got into sci-fi very much when I was younger, mm-hmm. but I don't know, man. Some of the it's pretty good. I'm enjoying it a lot. I've got, I think I know what I want to do next and I'm going to move it way up on my list, but, uh, or if we want to keep the transhuman thing going, I gotta do that one. I'm looking at like my master list of some of the stuff that I want to do. (laughs) And like some of these are like, folks go out there, keep one eye on the screen and one eye over your shoulder. Do you have a small business or side hustle looking to start one? One of the biggest reasons new businesses fail or never get off the ground at all is not understanding marketing as part of the process. You might have the best product in the world, but if you don't understand how to get traffic and convert it, it'll be all for nothing. If you'd like to avoid rookie mistakes and put your best foot forward, go to nickypcopywritercom slash road to hell and let me help. 